0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Solomon was building his own house thirteen years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits. At its breadth, fifty cubits. At its height, thirty cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars, with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the forty-five pillars, fifteen in each row. There were window frames in three rows, and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars, its length was fifty cubits, and its breadth thirty cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars, and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne, where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar, from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house, like this hall, for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones, cut according to measurement, and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of Yahweh, and the vestibule of the house. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice work. There were two hundred pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. THE SEA WAS SET ON THEM, AND ALL THEIR REAR PARTS WERE INWARD. ITS THICKNESS WAS A HAND breadth, AND ITS BRIM WAS MADE LIKE THE BRIM OF A CUP, LIKE THE FLOWER OF A lily. IT HELD TWO THOUSAND BATHS. HE ALSO MADE THE TEN STANDS OF BRONZE. EACH STAND WAS FOUR CUBITS LONG, FOUR CUBITS WIDE, AND THREE CUBITS HIGH. THIS WAS THE CONSTRUCTION OF THE STANDS. THEY HAD PANELS, AND THE PANELS WERE SET IN THE FRAMES and on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and the oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round, and the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast, There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round band, half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins, So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of Yahweh, the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, the 10 stands and the 10 basins on the stands and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of Yahweh, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of Yahweh, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold, for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of Yahweh was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 781 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, December 21st, 2023. And that was a reading of First Kings chapter seven. In this episode, we're going to be talking about why Aaron Wren does not support Christian nationalism. We'll also play the official trailer for a new documentary from Rob Reiner, titled God and Country. Also, we'll talk a little bit about Gen Z having some angst around ordering at restaurants. Ordering food kind of stresses them out. They don't even like to eat out because it stresses them out so bad. U.S. students' math scores dropping according to the first PISA report since COVID-19. What Biden has in the way of a solution to the inflation problem. and. Also, Carl Truman's article at First Things titled The Desecration of Man. All of that and more we will talk about in this episode. But first, let's turn to Matthew Henry's commentary on First Kings chapter 7, where he writes, As in the story of David, one chapter of wars and victories follows another. So, in the story of Solomon, one chapter concerning his buildings follows another. In this chapter, we have his fitting up several buildings for himself and his own use, his furnishing the temple, which he had built for God, with two pillars, with a molten sea, with ten basins of brass and ten layers upon them, with all the other utensils of the temple, with the things that his father had dedicated. The particular description of these things was not needless when it was written, nor is it now useless. Matthew Henry continues, never had any man so much of the spirit of building as Solomon had, nor to better purpose. He began with a temple, built for God first, and then all his other buildings were comfortable. The surest foundations of lasting prosperity are those which are laid in an early piety. Matthew six thirty-three. He built a house for himself where he dwelt. His father had built a good house, but it was no reflection upon his father for him to build a better, in proportion to the estate wherewith God had blessed him. Much of the comfort of this life is connected with an agreeable house. He was 13 years building this house, whereas he built the temple in little more than seven years. Not that he was more exact, but less eager and intent in building his own house than in building God's. He was in no haste for his own palace, but impatient till the temple was finished and fit for use. Thus, we ought to prefer God's honor before our own ease and satisfaction. He built the house of the forest at Lebanon, supposed to be a country seat near Jerusalem, so called from the pleasantness of its situation and the trees that encompassed it. I rather inclined to think that it was a house built in the forest of Lebanon itself, whither, though far distant from Jerusalem, Solomon, having so many chariots and horses, and those dispersed into chariot cities, which probably were his stages, might frequently retire with ease. It does not appear that his throne was at the house of the forest of Lebanon, and it was not at all improper to put his shields there as in a magazine. Express notice is taken of his buildings, not only in Jerusalem, but in Lebanon. And we read of the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus, which probably was part of this house. A particular account is given of this house that being built in Lebanon, a place famed for cedars The pillars and beams and roof were all cedar, and being designated for pleasant prospects, there were three tiers of windows on each side, light against light, or, as it may be read, prospect against prospect. Those whose lost eye cast in the country may be well reconciled to a country life by this that some of the greatest princes have thought those the most pleasant of their days which they have spent in their country retirements. He built piazzas before one of his houses, either that at Jerusalem or that in Lebanon, which were very famous, a porch of pillars, perhaps for an exchange or a guardhouse, or for those to walk in that attended him about business till they could have audience, or for state and magnificence. He himself speaks of wisdoms building her house and hewing out her seven pillars, Proverbs 9, one, for the shelter of those that, three verses before, chapter 8.34, are said to watch daily at her gates and to wait at the posts of her doors. At his house, where he dwelt in Jerusalem, he built a great hall, or porch of judgment, where was set the throne, or king's bench, or the trial of causes, in which he himself was appealed to, corum ipso regi tenenda causes. Where to be adjusted in the king's presence, and this was richly wainscoted with cedar from the floor to the roof. He had there also another court within the porch, nearer his house of similar work for his attendants to walk in. He built a house for his wife, where she kept her court. It is said to be like the porch, because built of cedar like it, though not in the same form. This, no doubt, was nearer adjoining to his own palace, yet perhaps if it had been as near as it ought to have been, Solomon would not have multiplied wives as he did. The wonderful magnificence of all these buildings is taken notice of. All the materials were the best of their kind. The foundation stones were costly for their size, four or five yards square, or at least so many yards long, and the stones of the building were costly for the workmanship hewn and sawn, and in all respects finely wrought. The court of his own house was like that of the temple. So well did he like the model of God's courts that he made his own by it. Now we could read on. There's more to read. But for the sake of time, I'll refer you to Matthew Henry's commentary. You can find it at blueletterbible.org. And we'll just say this we'll say that there being so much detail, one, the attention to detail is interesting. Not just that Solomon paid attention to the detail but that the attention to detail is included in the biblical text. That is noteworthy. It's also noteworthy that there is so much attention to detail that has to do with comfort and grandeur and skillfulness and beauty. These are big spaces. They're well-built. They are comfortable. Why? Because they're built for a king. Because it's not just the king who's going to live in them, it's also everybody who comes to speak with the king, it's also everybody who's even just going to pass by and know that this house exists, that these buildings exist, that they would have respect for the king. This is a way of projecting not just strength, but the wisdom that Solomon has been given by God. It's not the case that somebody having a big, beautiful house is folly or a vanity of vanities in and of itself, if that's all it is, you just want a big house so you can have a big house, you just want an expensive house so that people are impressed by you and it stops right there, then I would say that's foolishness. That's what Ecclesiastes is written about by Solomon, that it's a chasing after the wind. It's a vanity of vanities. That is not so good. And all the more, it's not so good if you got the wealth to build the big, beautiful house that you just want to impress people with through fraud or deceit. But if you got your money honestly, because you made good choices, because you made sound, wise investments, you managed affairs well and you were compensated handsomely for it, a big, beautiful house to the end of facilitating your continuing to do a good job in the role that you have, that is entirely legitimate. And it can be an extension of wisdom that you understand the effect that grand, comfortable, beautiful spaces has on the kinds of interactions that the people in those spaces and in proximity to those spaces are going to have. If you want peace, it's not a bad idea to build structures that are going to provide signals and cues as to what the expectations are. And those expectations, if they are not false advertising, if really, in fact, there is peace and there is going to be peace and there's going to be prosperity and there's going to be wisdom here and there's going to be good judgment and justice. Then signaling that helps everybody to be on the same page and it helps to reduce anxiety, not just for the one providing the administration here and giving the judgments and presiding and ruling and reigning like Solomon is, but also for the subjects, also for the people of Israel also for his court officials, also for people from foreign lands who come to talk with him, who come to see him and negotiate some kind of an arrangement with Israel. All of this is wise and isn't it interesting, too, that when Solomon is asked by God, what will I give you? He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for long life. He doesn't ask for the lives of his enemies. He asks for wisdom to govern well this God's great people. He asks for that, and then God says, because he's so pleased with Solomon's request, he's also going to give him riches and honor. A big, beautiful house like this for Solomon is proof positive that God has given not just wisdom, but also wealth and honor to Solomon. A big, beautiful house is a way of honoring somebody who has been important. They've made a significant contribution to their community, to their society, to the world. It represents a lot of return on investment. And insofar as the kind of investment that Solomon has made is also a result of God's blessings, giving him wisdom greater than all men before or after him ever had or will ever have. Solomon giving good counsel, it's worth its weight in gold. It's worth A incredible return on investment for the people who come asking Solomon for wisdom, come trying to get wisdom. Good advice, good judgment is extremely valuable. And don't take it for granted that Solomon has this big, beautiful house because his father passed down wealth to him. His father passed down the throne by God's grace because God blessed Solomon to inherit the kingdom. But Solomon has generated quite a lot of prosperity by effective rule, by wise counsel, wise rulings, wise negotiations, peace on all sides and economic activity of the kind that we see between Israel and Tyre, the Israelites and the Sidonians, that kind of economic activity all around and the establishment of treaties and friendly relations, and trade deals with everybody, that leads to a great deal of prosperity. And of course, if you want there to be a symbol of the prosperity of Israel, Solomon and his abode, his dwelling, is the place to start. You can't have Solomon living in poverty, living in some shack, to prove how wise he is if you want Israel to project prosperity and peace and wisdom. And so here we have it. We have an extended account of how his house was built, what the materials were, how they were worked, how big they were, how they were decorated in proportion to one another, where they sat, and what the purpose of these spaces was. And at least as far as we got in reading Matthew Henry's commentary, there's no indictment. There's no rebuke. Oh, that money could have been better spent on taking care of the poor. Well, actually, this is a great way to take care of the poor, that you would project for Solomon that he's the guy you want to talk with, you foreign nations. You want the poor people to not be so poor, and the best way to do that is economic stimulus. And not economic stimulus like you print money out of thin air and you deflate (laughs) the value of everybody's currency on hand, no, the best way to stimulate the economy is through trade, is through productive work and wise administration and making sure that people enjoy the fruits of their labors, including, by example, Solomon. But that said, we should move on from a discussion of 1 Kings chapter 7 to talking about some of these other items I told you we would talk about in this episode. More about 1 Kings in our next episode, rest assured. But for now, let's move on to some current events. Aaron Wren is not supportive of Christian nationalism. Here in his post at AaronWren.com from October 31st, he explains that he's not that interested in the Christian nationalism debate, which I find hard to believe personally. But he explains that the Claremont Institute's American Mind site asked him to write up his own take on it, for a symposium on the topic. Here's a little selection from what he gave them. Quote, before we could talk about Christian nationalism, we first have to talk about nationalism. As many people conclude that something has gone fundamentally wrong in America, nationalism is just one of the proposed solutions. Christian nationalism is a variant of that. Catholic integralism is another variation on this same theme. Others promote post-liberalism. The left, of course, wants some kind of socialism. Some call for an American Pinochet. Some people on the dissident right even flirt with discredited continental political philosophies. While it is understandable that people want to see America change for the better, these approaches won't work because they are foreign to the American political and cultural tradition. He continues after that selection, that quote from what he gave to American Mind. My piece stirred up some controversy on Twitter. Yeah, go figure. Go figure. If you say anything substantive at all, or even anything off the cuff on Twitter, you're likely to stir up controversy. So I think that's par for the course. I think that's a Twitter thing. Nevertheless, Aaron Wren wants to clarify a few things. He says, first of all, my piece is not a specific response to Stephen Wolfe's book, The Case for Christian nationalism. I have read the book, but am not qualified to assess his interpretation of Reformation political theology. I do think that Wolf's criticism of contemporary evangelicalism is insightful and quite often deadly accurate. Well, that's significant. <laughs> that's significant. And oh, by the way, before I read his next bullet point here, I think that can be a great place to start a Conversation where there's going to be disagreement, or we're not sure we're really on the same page as far as solutions. If we can at least agree about how to define certain problems, if we can at least agree that, yeah, I see that too. That is an issue. Yeah, that is a feature, and we need to do something about that because it's not so good. That's getting somewhere. You may not have a solution just like that, but most of solutioning is defining the problem correctly, most of sound troubleshooting is narrowing down where is the defect, where is the malfunction, but then you have to understand how the thing works and how it's supposed to work in order to actually go from defining the problem to coming up with meaningful solutions that we can agree on. So nevertheless, there is disagreement, obviously, between Stephen Wolfe and Aaron Wren as to solutions or as to the framing of historical Protestant Reformation political theology. All the same, he continues, My piece represents my own arguments and is not intended to be an endorsement of other people's criticisms of Christian nationalism. That's a good point. I'm glad he said that. That can be a major hazard. People ask you to weigh in on something, and what they really want is for you to endorse and flatter and affirm something which may be actually just another Defective take. They're pushing back on Christian nationalism, for instance, because they hate the idea of Christian faith, biblical truth, actually having a meaningful impact on public policy or the public discourse. So they want you to agree with them on that, and they're looking for ammunition against what they call Christian nationalism. Be careful that you're being precise when you say what you're going to say and you don't say everything necessarily that they're saying if they're not necessarily correct. Point out where there's common ground and say, yep, we agree about this, 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 and I'm not so sure about that. And I'm not so sure about that. I wouldn't say this. I'm not qualified to agree with you on this other thing. I have my doubts. I have my reservations. That's entirely fair. And that's how a good conversation, a cordial conversation that is going to be honest and productive should go. Aaron Rand continues, when I wrote America is not a nation in the European sense. I was not intending to imply that America is not a real nation. There is an American nation and an American people. America is not an idea or a proposition nation. It is a real nation and a real people. My intent was simply to contrast America with European examples like Italian unification. America was, dare I say it, a settler colonial nation and arguably a continental scale empire. Now I'll pause right here And I'll point out that this may be a factor of how old we are compared with how old Italy is and how Italy was formerly Roman. And according to legend, according to the history of the Roman people in their own accounting from ancient times, Rome was founded by refugees from the fallen city of Troy. And so there's a little bit of settler colonialism way back when, thousands of years ago, everybody comes from somewhere, very few people can with any confidence, any certitude, say they have always been in this part of the world forever. Almost always, they came from somewhere, and even if (laughs) they started out in one place, they had to move. Other peoples came in, displaced them, pushed them out, the climate changed, the weather wasn't cooperative, the food migrated elsewhere, There was a natural disaster. Something happened, right? Something happened and they migrated. And then what do you call that? Settler colonialism? Or do you just say that's people, right? That's just people moving where the opportunity is. And if a bunch of people from a certain place move with a common culture and a common worldview and a common religion, generally speaking, they're going to cement themselves in as a distinct people wherever it is that they end up next. That's what happened. I would say. In the mainstay, in little pockets here and there, you had slight variations in the original 13 colonies that became the United States of America. But American Nations would be a good read on this subject how the imprint of that initial culture, even if it came by and large from somewhere else, that early imprint, even as the original ethnos gets watered down with more and more people moving in, that original imprint of culture is going to be significant hereafter. It's going to take a lot of work to change the way a people think about themselves. It's going to take a lot of work to really change the fundamentals of a culture. But back to Aaron Wren. He writes, I was surprised to see that several people took issue with my statement that our challenges today are lesser than those of the Civil War or the Great Depression. It's clear that some people's positions today are shaped by an apocalyptic perspective on society And as I've argued several times in the past, while we should be clear-eyed and realistic, we should also reject apocalyptic thinking. And this is significant because some people are taking their apocalyptic thinking on the left to mean, let's just bulldoze the economy. Let's bulldoze people's quality of life, their ability to get food, shelter, clothing, transportation, matters attended to in a way that is in keeping with the standard of living that we've been building up over the last several decades. They're going to bulldoze all of that because they have an apocalyptic vision of the world coming to a fiery end due to climate change. For instance, on the right, especially conservative Christians, you'll have a lot of people saying, wow, it sure looks like Jesus is going to come back any time now. And so what's the point? And so they're bulldozing in some sense, the building of a system or the maintenance of a system that would allow political engagement that's meaningful or that is going to be profitable or that is going to endure. What's the point? You're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I've heard it explained years and years ago, but that is the attitude of many who are conservative Christians or they're more on the right side of the political spectrum and they're Christians Their apocalyptic thinking is pessimistic fatalism, and it's holding them back from participating in any meaningful way. And it affects, if they do participate, despite themselves, despite their desire, their stubborn desire to not participate, it affects the tone and tenor of their participation, where they're really not selling it. Or they're shrill, and they're desperate, and they're in this fight-or-flight mode constantly, and so therefore they're not taken seriously. Even if they really do see real problems that need solutions and they have some good ideas about historically what the solutions have been to these kinds of problems, they're written off because they only show up when they're upset about something and then they go away and they don't maintain anything. And they're not thinking long-term. They're thinking very, very short-term because they've got it into their heads and they've helped each other to believe this, that the world's only got maybe several months, maybe several years- but it's actually almost a mirror image of the radical left with regards to climate change. It's like both ends of the political spectrum are agreeing that the world is coming to an end very soon. One side says it's due to the burning of fossil fuels and overpopulation and overconsumption and carbon footprints. And the other side is saying it's because of sin. It's because we're a sinful, wicked people. And we know Jesus is going to come back soon because look how bad things are. Au contraire, I would agree with Aaron Wren, no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man cometh, only the Father alone. Not even the Son knows, only the Father knows when Jesus is coming back again. It'll be great, I won't be disappointed, I won't be upset, but unless you actually hear the trumpets sounding and you are literally seeing and hearing the events recorded in Revelation and not like, hey, there's this guy over here who's saying... You know, this could be interpreted as a fulfillment. This could be interpreted. If they have to tell you, and it's not just self-evident and totally obvious that these things are a fulfillment of biblical prophecy about the end times, hold that loosely in your hand and realize that people have been saying that for 2,000 years. Some very manipulatively to try and get money and get fame and attention and followers even at the expense of everybody who is listening to them. If it's not true and you predict that Jesus is coming back about this time next year, if it's not true and everybody sells their possessions who believes you, and Jesus does not, in fact, come back a year from today, well, what have you just done to the people who just had that fire sale? And, oh, by the way, what was the point of having the fire sale? If he's coming back in a year from now, do you think he's going to be upset that you have your own house? that you still have your car, that you still have a wardrobe of clothing to choose from, depending on the occasion? Is he going to be upset that you were still paying attention to your 401k and being responsible with the investment of your money? Your kids were still going to school. You were still going to work. Your whole family still going to church. Do you think he's going to be upset about that? If you do, well, then we need to have some other conversations about what's going into your assumptions about what is... Good? What is godly? What does God have for you to be about between now and forever? Back to Aaron Wren. He writes My basic belief is that, like socialism, nationalism is a European term that doesn't resonate with Americans. Donald Trump, who has an extremely powerful resonance with a lot of Americans, doesn't use the term that I know of. Instead, he talks about America first. Donald Trump is very attuned to what language resonates with his audience. Also, I don't recall the great communicator Ronald Reagan using the language. My view is that given the left's general hostility to historic America and its symbols, the American right should double down on them. Adopting rhetoric around post-liberalism, Catholic integralism, or Christian nationalism does not do this. As I've said before, I believe the best path forward for the country is to remain anchored within the American political and cultural tradition, which has all the resources we need to address contemporary problems. Now, we'll just stop right there because that's the end of the post, for one thing. But there's wisdom in what Aaron Rand is saying, but also the other side of the coin is that the left, because they hate America's traditional symbols, they're just calling Christian nationalism whatever is reminiscent of an older way of Christians relating to their civic duty. That's what it is. They're calling Christian nationalism conservative Christians being politically engaged, being engaged in the public square and actually advocating for meaningful changes to how we do things as a result of reading in the scriptures that this or that is true, this or that is good, this or that is beautiful. Wanting good for their neighbors, wanting good for the city to which Yahweh their God has brought them in their exile. When Christians get engaged and they're conservative and they're pushing back on the prescriptions of the radical left, especially calls for socialism, especially little underhanded ways of enacting socialism, even if you don't call it that, the left in media and in politics and in academia is calling that Christian nationalism. And so we have to bear in mind here that we're not in agreement. There's so much disagreement. There's so much semantic range to what is Christian nationalism anyways. The left is actually opposed to this idea of America first, and that is to say that they're globalists. Of course, they're opposed to Americans saying America first. Of course, they're opposed to self-interest and the free market and American prosperity and American strength that exercises authority disproportionate to our share of the world, our share of the world's population, our share of the world's cultural heritage or land. Of course, they're opposed to America first. but then. This has been, since Trump first ran for president in 2016, this has been, I think, a big part of where the never Trumpers, not the radical left, I just talked about them, but the never Trumpers who are so allergic to what Trump is proposing, not just his character, not just his rhetoric, not just his own private life his own personal morality, but they're opposed to what it is that he is prescribing because they see it as, ooh, I don't know. I don't know if that's moral. He says America first, and they hear America only, as in only America should be winning, and that's nonsense. Just like in First Kings, as Solomon is being introduced to us, we find that Israel is prospering. Israel is doing well economically. Solomon is doing well economically. Financially, he's very well off if he can build a house for himself, the way that he's building a house and the way it's being described in 1 Kings chapter 7. But Solomon doing well is not proof that everybody else is doing poorly. Israel doing well is not proof that everybody else around Israel is doing poorly. That's the thing about economic activity and trade and productive work and wise management of your own private economy and a national economy and a regional economy If it's done well and wisely, you actually pursuing what's in the interest of your people benefits the surrounding peoples, unless they're ruled by corrupt men who can't get over their jealousy and want to come in and raid and pillage and destroy and tear down because they don't have anything like that. But if you're especially wise, you do what is in the best interest of your people. That's your responsibility. If you take an oath of office, it's not to be president of the world If you're president of the United States, you're supposed to be serving the American people first. And the issue that we have right now politically in this country, and we've had it for decades, is corruption and the taking of bribes has been presented as some virtuous thing, as some high-minded thing. It's not a new thing, and it's not actually for the purposes of enacting world peace. It's just plain old-fashioned grift. And the taking of bribes. And taking bribes blinds the eyes of the righteous to do justice. It's not so that the brotherhood of man and all these global citizens will get along and there will be no more war and no more want, no more poverty. No, no. It's corrupt politicians doing what corrupt politicians have always done all over the world for all time when they lose love for the people they represent and they only seek their own benefit, they will sell out their own people and their own country. And that's what's been happening. We have had people in office who claim this or that is some act of benevolence for some foreign country or for the global community. And then they claim indirectly that's really good for America, but they have their priorities out of order. And so this so-called Christian nationalism really boils down to Christians saying it's good for an individual to seek the welfare of the city to which God has specifically brought them to. It's good for us to seek the welfare specifically of America if we're Americans. That is good, and that is not ungodly, and it's not unspiritual. And if our country prospers and is safer for it and is stronger for it, that also is not Immoral. That's not ungodly. That's not out of step with our Christian faith or what the Bible teaches. The radical left, which is loath to let go of their moral pretext for being corrupt, they're calling that Christian nationalism and they're saying that it's a very dangerous thing. And I'm sorry to say, I think a lot of academics and a lot of, yes, even people I like, like Aaron Wren, fall for the disingenuous complaints against Christian nationalism. Not that I would agree with everybody who is so-called for Christian nationalism, but what's being called Christian nationalism on the left is really just Christians participating in public life. Like the Bible is true. Like what God says is good is good. Like we should promote the good according to God. Like we should reward those who do what is good according to God. That's their real issue. That's the chief contention. As such, it seems to me, while it's good for us to correct those who are mistakenly pursuing a good end through faulty reasoning or conclusions that do not necessarily follow from the premise as to how to cure what ails us, it's good to correct here and there. But Christian nationalism as a term, as a category, is so broad as to almost be meaningless when we're talking amongst ourselves I think it would be better for us to get down into the details, like, say, for instance, when we're talking about Reformation political theology, historically. Let's get into the details there, and let's not be so quick to say, ah, that's Christian nationalism, and I'm against it, right? If that's Christian nationalism, then I'm opposed to it. Well, yeah, but what is Christian nationalism? The conditional statement here that everything hinges on is, if. If that is, is it? That's what we need to determine. Or... If we can't determine that because the waters are so muddy, you know they muddy the waters to make them seem deep, as Nietzsche once said. If we can't determine what this term is, then maybe we just focus up on what do we know is true, what do we know is good, and where corrections are needed, let's correct here and there individuals or movements who've made clear, here's what we're proposing, here's what we're for. Okay, but what about this and what about that? And I don't think this is quite correct, but if we did this instead, I would be on board with that. Let's get more to that kind of a discourse, I say, because we need to get on the same page so that we're working together. We're pulling together in the same direction instead of some variation on the last several years where you have the people who are diehard, make America great again. And the cult of personality around Donald Trump is all they see. That's all they care about. That's all they want to hear. And you have the never Trumpers on the other hand, that's made us weaker in our opposing the push for socialism. And we can't afford to be weak on our push against socialism. We just can't. This is a deadly serious danger. And I'm not being apocalyptic when I say that. I say mass suffering, mass casualties, poverty, and even, yes, enslavement comes with socialism. And we're seeing that more and more as socialism affects more and more of our political process, our cultural conversations and our economic principles for our next segment though and we won't spend a lot of time on this but we will play the trailer let's talk about God and country the Rob Reiner produced Dan partland directed documentary looking at so-called Christian nationalism this trailer is about two minutes and a half minute long we'll play the trailer in its entirety If you haven't seen it, then you should go watch it. If you have seen it, this will just remind you and refresh your memory before we talk about it briefly. But here it is, cut one, the trailer in its entirety. Take a listen. America and Christianity are like baseball and apple pie, and we celebrate them together. I was 16, 17 years old when I became a Christian. I'm an evangelical minister. I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm a Christian nationalist. I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. Is Christian nationalism Christian? Um, no, it isn't. We should be blazing forth as a countercultural example. And instead, we're leading the charge of malice and division. Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a means to an end. That end being some form of authoritarianism. Being a Christian is about the values of inclusion. Christian nationalism is certainly not based on the values of the gospel. God wants America to be saved. They're told over and over and over again that you're in danger. You need to fight if you don't want to lose your country. We are in a civil war between good and evil. This is not a movement about Christian values. This is about Christian power. What happens to the people who don't believe this stuff? We are on the precipice. God is on our side. We're taking our nation back. The thing that keeps me up at night is that we lose democracy. Does that seem possible? Yes. (laughs) Christianity at its best is committed to love and truth and justice. If we do this right, what a country we will be. Okay, so there you go. There's the trailer for God and Country. And what you probably could hear, but you couldn't see, unless you've already seen the trailer, is back and forth between these interviews with the likes of David French or Russell Moore or other progressive ministers, other progressive professors at Christian universities or professing Christian universities, Christian Kobes de May is interviewed, it looks like. For instance, the creator of VeggieTales is interviewed. As these guys are going back and forth between these close-ups on their very concerned, sober faces as they're criticizing the conservative Christian political engagement, what you have in between is scenes of January 6th. The most violent and disturbed, and unruly images of January 6th. And, and what I find so frustrating about that is it's a smear job. This is not, hey, let's talk with the progressive Christians who have uh, political engagement, and let's talk with the conservative Christian ministers and content creators and professors who have a political engagement and they have some insight into this and they have perspective. And let's get them into a room and let's have them discuss this back and forth. Or let's go back and forth between clips of the one end of the political spectrum and clips of the other end of the political spectrum. And let's listen to what both sides have to say, the conservative Christians and the progressive Christians, and you come to your own conclusions. No, it's not that. It's all presented as though the voices of reason And moderation and calm and humility and inclusion are on the left, or saying, let's just give the left what they want. And all the other end of the political spectrum has to say is January 6th, which is just not true. That's just not honest, obviously. So, this is not supposed to actually persuade those on the conservative end of the spectrum, first and foremost, theologically, secondarily socially, culturally, economically, politically, it's not supposed to win them over through reasoned discourse. This is propaganda for leftism. We like just like, you know, the left likes Republicans who will cut deals with Democrats. We like progressive Christians who will give the left what they want and cut a deal and call it being bipartisan. Or we like progressive Christians who are infusing their so-called gospel with social justice and critical race theory and gender theory and affirming gay marriage and affirming a woman's right to choose to get an abortion and the government should just butt out of all that. We like those Christian ministers. We're going to say those are the real Christians and we're going to portray everybody who disagrees with them, everybody who's a conservative, as unhinged lunatics. We'll play some audio of some of the most controversial and discredited people on the right. And then we'll play some images and some audio from January 6th, and we'll say that's all they have to say. That's all they have to offer. And this is just entirely dishonest and disingenuous. And again, it's a a smear job. It's a hit piece. It's more and more propaganda. It's really supposed to cement in the progressives who are told, Don't believe your lying eyes. If it seems like you're less free, we're less prosperous, we're less safe, it's all these guys' fault because they're not letting Biden and the Democrats do more of what they want to do. It's all these guys' fault that there's so much turmoil in the public square and in our political process, there's so much instability and our economy is not doing better than it is. It's all their fault because, see, they wouldn't just let the left have what they want to have. I haven't seen the movie. Of course, it's not out yet. It's set to debut in theaters around February of this next year, it looks like. But just watching the trailer, they're telling us what sort of a movie this is going to be. And all the usual suspects are being interviewed. All of the voices of just give the left what they want even if you disagree with it, maybe especially if you disagree with it, are presented here. And this will not come to a good end unless we watch it and we have a response that is cogent, that is thoughtful, that is firm. Because these guys are wrong. They're just simply wrong. Saying that you would care about your country and you would want it to be prosperous, that you would not want it to be overrun, that you would not want it to be sold out, that you want it to be more biblical, how can that be some horrible thing, the way that they're presenting it? Only if they selectively edit the script and only talk with the people who are saying, give the left what they want. And that's, of course, Rob Reiner. That's his MO. He is very much of the left and an atheist. And he's for this project because he is vehemently opposed to Donald Trump And everybody who thinks like Donald Trump or talks like Donald Trump or agrees with or supports Donald Trump generally. This is spiteful and the only way to make good use of this will be to wisely critique it because it's going to be hot garbage. It's going to be a dumpster fire. I guarantee you the trailer alone is hot garbage. The full movie is going to be hot garbage. But... You can't just say that. You're going to have to explain how and why each one of these things that are being claimed and portrayed is not honest. And that's not true. That does not follow. You are misrepresenting. You are slandering your fellow Christians. If you are a Christian, you're slandering your fellow Americans. And that needs to be confronted. That is sinful, wicked behavior. And that needs to be confronted. They'll say, oh, but right back at you. Uh, You guys slandered us first. But think here of just the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, for instance, and his coming out strongly in support of critical race theory in the midst of the Black Lives Matter hubbub. As cities in America were burning and there was looting and rioting and arson and violence against cops and violence against anybody who even appeared to be on the other end of the political spectrum from Black Lives Matter and these trained Marxists. Phil Vischer came out with an extended video justifying critical race theory. In fact, insisting that to be a good Christian, you have to affirm critical race theory and the allegation that America is an inherently racist country and evil, therefore, and corrupt, therefore, and that it needs to be overhauled. Russell Moore and David French have been no friend to conservative Christians, and they've said and implied some very, very ugly things as to Christians who engage in the political discourse, in the public discourse, culturally. And at best, they have watered down our testimony in the public square by insisting that we just need to give the left their wins. Just give them gay marriage. Okay, now that we have gay marriage, even though I was opposed to it on the front end, the worst thing would be for us to have that undone if the Supreme Court said, nope, that's going to be overturned. That's not a thing. That would be so disruptive and so unloving to our neighbors in our community who are gay and they think they're married. Let's not do that. That wouldn't be loving. Well, what are you implying about your fellow professing Christians who are saying that's exactly what we should do? For all the same reasons that it was bad to rule in Obergefell v. Hodges the way that the Supreme Court did, it needs to be undone. And not... Well, now they're doing it, and so let's just leave it pee. And you're a bigot. And and you're probably not even a good Christian, if you think otherwise. As we get closer, as the full movie is out, we'll discuss it. I intend to watch it and do a review. But for now, I wanted to at least play the trailer for you and explain and illustrate what I was talking about in relation to Aaron Wren's piece. We need to be careful what we're calling or what we're allowing to be called Christian nationalism, if it's this big monolithic thing and we say, oh, I'm against that, remember that the left has been trying to use this bogeyman of Christian nationalism and this talk of Trump is worse than Hitler. They've been trying to use that for years now to emasculate and to make impotent conservative American Christians who are engaged politically. They're engaged in the public discourse. They're engaged in the culture and trying to influence the course of this country with the truth of God's word. Be careful that you're not so quick to throw under the bus Christian nationalism because you might be throwing yourself under the bus, actually, really, truly. Just be careful. That's all the more I'll say for now. Next up, though, ever so briefly, let's touch on a Cardinal Pritchard post from December 17th over at Not the Bee: 86% of Gen Z kids suffer from menu anxiety, meaning they're too scared to order food at a restaurant. One third can't even talk to the waiter when they order. I agree, Cardinal Pritchard, this is weird. But Gen Z kids, 86% of them don't feel comfortable ordering food at a sit-down restaurant, and a third of them don't even want to talk to the waiter when it's time to order. According to the reporting from the New York Post, and I quote, researchers asked more than 2,000 people how relaxed they felt while eating out, hoping to gauge how enjoyable the experience is for everyone. About 86% of Gen Z adults aged 18 to 24 in this study admitted they have suffered from menu anxiety when dining in restaurants compared to 67% of all respondents. So it's still a really high number overall, but 86%. That's a lot. That's most. Some of these young adults, 34%, reported feeling so anxious they wind up asking other people at the table to speak to waiters on their behalf. The frequent occurrence of this very specific fear appeared to be triggered by the increasingly exorbitant cost of a meal out, along with the respondent worrying about not being able to find something they like on the menu or, after the fact, regretting what they ordered Some even took it to the extreme with almost 40% of Gen Z customers saying they simply wouldn't go out for dinner if they couldn't check the menu first. Now, what is driving this? Is it the rising cost of eating out? Man, if I'm going to spend that much, I really want to not have any regrets. I'm maybe going to regret it anyways, just for how expensive it is, but I really don't want to have any regrets about what I ordered. Is that all it is? Or Is this related to Gen Z culturally as a generation coming of age with the internet and suffering from a debilitating case of the fear of missing out? Or is it a little bit of both? Is this a lack of communication skills development at a crucial point in their lives because everything was locked down? Because every time you go out in public, everything is... Offensive because everybody's going to be triggered by something. You might say the wrong thing. You're so used to your life being all over the internet that you might say the wrong thing and somebody might be recording and it might be all over the internet and your life might be over. Could it be related to that where a simple oops could turn into, that's all you're known for. Now you're a meme. I think it's all of the above, but I also think that as this pertains to the cost, that's what's referenced is how expensive it is to eat out. A lot of people don't even want to eat out at all unless they can look at the menu first and be sure that they're sure that they're actually going to be glad they had that meal, that expensive meal at a dine-in restaurant. This is one of the effects of inflation. This is one of the effects of more and more socialism being imposed on the American people. Legal plunder, as Bastiat would say, but really the printing of money out of thin air, to fund foreign countries, to fund harebrained social engineering schemes, also taxes and fines and penalties driving up the cost of everything, also artificially constraining and constricting the supply of goods and services in the economy by overregulation. Everything is scrutinized. Everything is legislated. Everything is regulated so as to actually pinch competition on behalf of wealthy donors. People who donate to a political party or a political candidate get to say, we want these rules to be imposed on all of our competition or potential competition so that we maintain our market dominance or we achieve market dominance, we increase our market share. I think this is a very granular example of how that affects young people in particular who do not have as much disposable income typically. And it's not going to go as far, say for instance, if they're trying to budget for eating out with their friends or their family, they're so anxious about it that they don't even want to go eat out. It's so expensive, but it's also not just so expensive. They're anxious that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to choose the wrong thing. And I think personally that it's going to be all over the, Internet. It's gonna be all over the internet, and then next thing they know, they're gonna be a laughing stock, and their life will be forever characterized by being a meme. Another thing it could be, though, is the headline roundup at All Sides related news. U.S. students' math scores drop in first PISA report since COVID-19. Here's the summary from All Sides News Team. The organization for economic cooperation and development released the results of its 2022 PISA report revealing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on academic performance across the globe. For context, the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, that's what PISA stands for, tests 15-year-old students around the world on reading mathematics and science literacy. The 2022 test was the first administered since the COVID-19 pandemic, during which many schools temporarily shifted to remote instruction. U.S. students' score for math literacy dropped 13 points from the last test administered in 2018, remaining lower than the global average but falling roughly in line with an overall global decline. U.S. students dropped one point in reading literacy and three points in science literacy from 2018 but scored above the global average and above 2012 scores in both categories. How the media covered it. Some left-rated outlets more prominently highlighted the reading and science scores, while right-rated outlets focused almost exclusively on the math scores. The Wall Street Journal Center bias included a quote from the education secretary, arguing that President Biden's funding prevented a worse performance from students. Of course, yeah. Oh, but how could it have been, right? It could have been so much worse if Biden wasn't president. You know, if Trump were still in there. That, uh, <laughs> got to think about that. Of course, of course. The Daily Caller, right bias, pulled information from the Axios, lean left bias report, but left out context included in Axios' coverage, such as the fact that U.S. students lagged behind other countries in math scores prior to the pandemic. Why the difference? Right-rated outlets are more critical of pandemic-era school closures and shutdowns overall, while left-rated outlets more often defend these closures as Necessary. And of course, we know why that is because the left drove for the closures in the first place. So they're trying to defend their own judgment, their own credibility, their own scorecard. They have a vested interest. They're not, in other words, impartial, disinterested. They have a vested interest in minimizing and downplaying the negative effects of the lockdowns. And the left, by the way, demonstrated in those lockdowns what they really think of the majority of humanity, not just the majority of Americans, but the majority of people around the world. They demonstrated during the COVID craziness in 2020 especially, but also in 2021 for sure, that they don't believe the vast majority of human beings are competent to make decisions for themselves, they need to be ruled. They need to be governed in every detail by their betters. Who are their betters? Obviously, the experts. Obviously, the folks who have gone to the best universities and received an education in progressivism. The people with the titles, the people with the diplomas that hang on the wall behind them as they're being interviewed by CNN. Those are the folks who should be making the decisions for the vast majority of humanity, even when it comes down to the most personal and intimate of decisions. As long as we're not talking about sex and abortion, they think every other decision you make should be manipulated, it should be regulated, it should be monitored to ensure compliance with regulations and mandates. In short, the lockdowns demonstrated that the vast majority of human beings really don't need to study math and science. Reading, sure, because you've got to read the instructions from your superiors. You definitely want to read those carefully and closely. But math, why do the math? It's just going to frustrate you and it's just going to get you on the wrong side of the experts, especially if their math doesn't check out. You see some people double-checking the math and pointing to the math and getting in trouble for it, having their careers destroyed, having their reputations destroyed, having their relationships with friends and family destroyed. Why would you want to study the math? As soon as you start double-checking the math as though this is your business to do that, the experts jump in and they say, you're not competent you don't really know. You're just a kook. You're just a conspiracy theorist. This is probably just Russian disinformation. Where did you get your degree anyway? Huh? What? No, I don't care. I don't care. They probably shouldn't have given you your degree. They should probably take that degree back. (laughs) Oh, you have some position of authority? We'll fix that and then we'll follow up. We'll ask you again after we've gotten you stripped of your committee assignments and removed from whatever position of authority we can get you removed from by leaning on the donors to that organization, initiating a boycott campaign. Why would students want to learn math anyways? And maybe that's part of the reason for the anxiety on the part of Gen Z. I don't want to go to a restaurant and have to figure out how much I'm supposed to tip because now you're supposed to tip for everything, by the way. Did you know that? You go to an automated car wash and the car wash is going to ask you, if you'd like to tip, but then you've got to do the math quickly in your head for other people to see. Other people will be looking and watching and waiting. What is 15% of $30 and 23 cents for my dine-in meal with friends? Ah, I want to be able to look at the menu and calculate the tax and the tip before I go. Otherwise, I don't even want to go. From the left featured coverage of this story. Again, Axios. U.S. students' math scores plunge in global education assessment. Interesting that. What that tells me is that American students don't see positive incentives worth the costs, worth the risks even, like I was just explaining. They don't see the benefits outweighing the costs. They don't see it as lucrative. Here's a funny thought. If rappers... With expensive cars and hot chicks and big mansions on the coast in sunny California, if they were rapping about how they became so successful because they really paid attention in their advanced math classes and they got high marks, I guarantee you there would be some motivated math students in America. But because... You have this perception created by the experts, very selfishly, very unlovingly, that they'll do the math and they'll just tell you what it is that you need to do as a result of their having done the calculations. Oh, no, no, no. Don't double check the math because we'll just make you look either like a liar or like a crazy person or like you're corrupt or like you're incompetent. So why bother? All of the incentive is placed on letting the experts just make these decisions. And the response to COVID in the way of locking things down from both the right and the left showed what it is that both ends of the political spectrum politically had to gain or to lose. The response now to the fallout of the COVID lockdowns shows what the right and the left has to win or to lose, has to gain or to suffer. Conservatives who insist that private individuals are the most competent to manage their own business, their own family, their own home, their own lives, and they don't need somebody else telling them how many masks to wear, two, three, four. They don't need some expert telling them what size house is environmentally conscious. They don't need some expert mandating that they will either buy an electric vehicle or use public transportation. They don't need an expert telling them to eat bugs for the sake of carbon neutrality. They don't need experts telling them those things. And they definitely don't need the experts telling them that they can't go to their grandmother's funeral. They can't go to their best friend's wedding. They can't even go to be bedside with a cousin as their cousin is passing away, there's only a limited amount of time to talk with them and visit with them before they're gone. Conservatives insist, you know what, if there's risk and reward there, it's the private individual who is most competent to make the calculation what's best for them. The radical left, the everybody should be ruled by the technical experts, the people with the advanced degrees from the universities that we like with the fancy titles preferably in the bureaucratic state, unelected, ideally, and in there for life, living like kings, never worried about being primaried, never worried about getting voted out of office. Yeah, those people, those people will do the math. You just do what they say. You just follow orders. When it turns out that the effects on the individual can be actually observed in the stats, And that the closer you are to those kinds of experts, and they're very toxic, very selfish, very cruel and oppressive and totalitarian ways, the closer you are, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old or you're young, the worse you are off, the less healthy, the less happy, the less productive, the less prosperous, the less safe you are. When it turns out that that's what the stats show, you can rely on the left to spin it as no big deal. Not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It'll all buff out. From the center, from the whole sides. news <laughs> team roundup, learning loss hit the U.S. hard. It's as bad or worse across the world. Now, there's a centrist spin because the centrist wants what? To either get along with everybody or as close to everybody as they possibly can or to offend everybody equally. Yes, the U.S. is hit hard, but the whole world was hit hard. Yeah, but how much of the world being hit hard is because American bureaucrats, American Democrats leaned on the rest of the world and set a bad example and had a bad influence on the rest of the world. Countries around the world that followed our lead had also followed the lead of other prominent Western nations that also didn't particularly want to see Donald Trump reelected to a second term. And I think that was a crucial motivator for the globalists around the world and also for the media and academia and corporations and Democrats here in the U (sighs) S they hurt their people. They hurt stunted the growth of impoverished And oppressed their people. So, really, I think you still land the blame squarely at the feet of public health officials, Democrat politicians, the leftist media here in this country, because we set the tone. That's what it means to be leader of the free world. Leader of the free world doesn't mean that you set the example and you get the credit if it goes really well for everybody, but you let everybody else take the blame if it goes badly for everybody. No, 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 no. That's not how that works. From the right, math scores around the U.S. plunge as students suffer from learning loss. And oh, by the way, it wasn't just time out of the classroom. It was also what we did to children in scaring the hell out of them. The adults behaved very selfishly, in many cases Demonstrating that they cared more about their own career, their own reputation, their own comfort, their own safety than they cared about children, who were, oh, by the way, because it bears repeating right now, practically bulletproof as pertained to COVID. The stats showed that from the beginning. And yet, the lives of children forever after will be impacted because of how the adults in their lives. Related to the COVID pandemic. Oh, no, you can't go to school. Oh, no, you can't go hang out with your friends. Oh, no, you can't do this or that. Oh, now it's looking like the experts want us to get you vaccinated, even though there are significant health risks to be concerned about. We're just going to do what the experts tell us to because we're too afraid of being ostracized. We care more about our own reputation than we care about your health and safety. Ooh. Do you think kids forget that? Do you think the kids who observe that, they see that playing out, and all the adults around them, all the adults that they're supposed to be able to look to and trust acting like that, do you think that kids who see that, whether they're allowed to comment on it or not, and they perceive that, whether they're allowed to do anything or say anything about it, do you think that when they sit down to study, they're able to focus like they were able to before you rocked their world? With that revelation? No. And oh, by the way, that's another thing about our previous segment with regards to Gen Z. What I see, what I perceive in Gen Z having significant anxiety about eating out and ordering and talking with a waiter is that either A, their parents' generation didn't take them out to eat for a dine in experience and show them how to do these things or give them experience doing these things when they were younger, which is to say that their parents either couldn't afford it or didn't want to be bothered, which is to say that Gen Z and now Gen Alpha follows Gen Z. And also I would say the millennial generation before that, albeit in a different way, and I would say Gen X before that, albeit in a different way, have been very poorly served for the most part by most of the parents successively generation after generation here in America. Your child getting low marks in a particular class is not proof that you are not a good parent. Your child having anxiety about ordering is not proof that you're not a good parent. But when a whole country's generation of children, one generation after another after another, has significant mental and emotional problems, something's wrong with the parents of the previous generation who have had these kids and are now responsible to raise these kids and train these kids, and equip these kids, and protect these kids, and provide for these kids. And again, this goes right back to the experts saying, you will let us do the math. We'll tell you what to do. All you need to know is how to read our instructions step by step, and how to follow the instructions. And stay in school, because that's primarily what it is when we're talking about compulsory government schooling. It's obedience training, like dogs are put through, because that's how the experts think of you. They don't think of you as people like their people. They think of you as so many trained performers. And trained not like a highly trained skilled competent professional who is supposed to be an equal. No, no. no. Trained like an animal. If you demonstrate that actually you're a cut above and you do happen to make it then they'll say, "Ah, okay. I guess you are fully human like I'm fully human after all, but then you might just as well run into a new problem because unless you're going to be a team player with the expert class, you become a threat at that point. And again, I refer back to what we saw during the COVID pandemic. How is it that young people are supposed to see it as something to aspire to and to work for, to pay attention in their math classes? For instance, for example, Math literacy dropped 13 points from 2018, 13 points. If it had gone up 13 points, I guarantee you the Biden administration would be taking a lap, but because it dropped 13 points, the way that the left and the center will spin it as, well, yeah, but it was bad for everybody. And whose fault was that too? Yeah, but it would have been much worse if Trump were still in office. That's a funny thing, given that the score was 13 points higher in 2018. Who was driving the lockdowns? The left. and We all know it. However hard they want to spin it. For our next story, though, briefly before we get on to Carl Truman's piece at First Things. Commodore Vanderbilt, December 1st. Yes, three weeks ago. Biden tells corporations to bring down their prices since inflation has come down. Gets fact-checked to high heaven. This is a post not to be, of course. We love not to be here if you can't tell. Here's the original tweet from Joe Biden. And I quote, let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought their prices down, even as inflation has come down. It's time to stop the price gouging. Give American consumers a break. What were the community notes on X? (laughs) The social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Readers added context. They thought people might want to know and I quote, as long as the inflation rate is positive, prices are increasing. The fact that inflation has come down to 3.2% in October means that prices are still going up, albeit at a slower rate than before. Do you find this helpful? Rate it. Yes, I would rate this as helpful. Yeah, sorry, Jack, Vanderbilt writes, but just because inflation isn't 8% anymore doesn't mean prices are going down, but you wouldn't know that. You're a dead guy. So what do prices matter to you? Seriously, though, this is such an incredible level of dumb. Let's click on just one of these links Twitter left in the community notes. From USA Today, prices don't drop when inflation eases, while your wallet will be hurting for a while. And we'll skip that. We won't click on it. It's self-evident. Simple stuff, Jack. And here's a quote. When talking about inflation, it's important to remember that inflation is a rate that measures how fast prices are rising. If the consumer inflation rate drops from its 40 year high of 8.6% in May, prices are still rising, just not as fast. Currently, inflation sits at 3.2%. The Fed's ideal is 2%. But then, what goes into inflation, ladies and gentlemen? It's fiscal policy, it's government spending, it's tax rates, it's the regulatory environment. If, for instance, for example, just using my industry, which is very much in the crosshairs of the Biden administration, my industry, the Democrats hate it, the globalists at least talk publicly like they hate it, but there are two principal ways to choke out oil and gas. One is to just deny permits. You have to ask permission before you can drill a well, frack a well, build the facilities above ground for a well, build the pipelines that carry the oil and the gas and the water to facilities which will process those and either dispose of the waste or make, say for instance, diesel or gasoline or propane for your backyard grill or natural gas that gets piped to your house in the winter to make the furnace operate and heat your home. You can deny the permits... And then the oil and gas industry can't drill new wells. They can't get at reservoirs to produce in your country. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to say, oh yeah, you can have a permit. But here's the thing. You're going to have to drill your well in this way. Oh, it's more expensive? Yeah, it's okay. That's fine. We're good with that. We don't care. Oh, and when you frack, you're going to have to abide by these rules. Yeah, you can't do this, 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 this. You must do this, 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 this. Oh, that's not as profitable? We don't care. Oh, and oh, by the way, did we mention when you construct the facility above ground, you're going to have to build it like this, using these materials in these ways. It's going to have to be installed in this way. You're going to have to install these safety devices in this way. You're going to have to monitor these things in this way, you're going to have to have a person assigned to that. You're going to have to hire additional personnel to do the construction work, the maintenance work, and also the operating, and also the reporting. Because, oh, by the way, you're going to have to report to us constantly that you're in compliance with our regulations. And, oh, by the way, did we mention we're going to tax the oil as well? Yeah, there'll there'll be taxes on the oil that you produce and that you transport and that you sell and that the consumer buys. And oh, by the way, did we mention that we're also going to regulate how these products are used by the customer? Yeah, we're going to also regulate the things that make use of the products of your drilling and producing these wells. Yeah, we don't want consumers buying vehicles, for instance, that are below a certain mile per gallon rating. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, eventually, just so you know, we don't want consumers even being able to buy vehicles that run on the product. So that's the other way, right? The one way is you just don't give permission to operate. And you say, no, you can't drill wells. You can't produce the oil. The other way is to say, we're going to put so many regulations in place that reduce the profitability of drilling to a point that makes you just going somewhere else more cost effective. And so you will, you'll take your business elsewhere. You'll go to some other state or some other country where they don't have as much of a regulatory burden and there's a higher return on investment. What does that end up doing though for every barrel of oil produced? It ends up making it more expensive. Because if it's more expensive to drill the well, frack the well, build the facility, transport the materials, you know, pipe it, truck it, whatever, if it's more expensive to refine it, and it's more expensive to sell it to you, and it's also more expensive for you to be able to consume it, all of those costs drive up the cost of absolutely everything else. Because name something that's not being transported in our day and age, some way, somehow. Very few to no things are being just carried by hand from where you acquire them to where you're going to need them, where you're going to use them. Inflation going up is a measure of the government spending money that it doesn't have, whether that money is printed or that money is taxed. They tax you, they collect fines and fees from you or from the people who sell you goods and services. And that ends up driving the cost of everything up relative the supply of money. Why? Because there are more dollars in the economy, fewer dollars in your personal private economy relative the broader economy. If the Democrats don't know this, that also may be a contributing factor to why our math scores are going down because the Democrats primarily control the educational apparatus. So maybe they're not so good at the math, And therefore, when they're in charge of teaching the kids, making sure that the kids learn the math, they don't do such a great job. Corporations, just lower your prices already. That's all it is. That's all it takes. Yeah, if they lower their prices to the point that people are not going to be able to tell that inflation is still a problem, all the accumulated inflation, by the way, over the past several years, that's still with us, but your wages are not going up, guess what will happen? they'll have to lay people off. The corporations will lay people off and they'll cut wages and they'll cut benefits and they'll cut hours for the people who are working for them and that will only deepen the problem. Why? Because they if they don't want to go bankrupt, they're going to have to either take their business elsewhere or they're going to have to tighten their belts. If you want them to lower prices, they're going to have to reduce their costs. It's as simple as that. And if your insistence is well they just shouldn't be making money, then I say why are you so anti-competition? Why are you choking competition by doing the dirty work of corporations and big donors who own corporations when they want you to regulate their competition into bankruptcy or into insolvency because that's another hidden cost here. Regulations are costly. There's always a cost associated, whether it's a direct cost. Hey, we have to buy this additional equipment that we didn't have to buy before and we weren't going to buy otherwise because now it's mandated Otherwise, we won't have a license to operate. Otherwise, we'll be fined or we'll have our permits revoked. Either it's that or it's even just there's so much time invested and attention invested that now we're not focused on the core of what makes our business profitable, what allows us to produce an abundance of goods, relative demand. And oh, by the way, that's how prices come down. If you're not going to reduce the supply of money in circulation, you're going to have to increase the supply of goods and services in the economy relative a static flat supply of money. And the Democrats don't want to do that because they're all about carbon neutrality. But then that really translates to they're all for producing less and you consuming less and you having and owning nothing and being happy by the year 2030. None of this am I making up. None of this is conjecture. All of this, in their own words, they have said. Now, the clever ones who want to lie to you, and they won't tell you up front, you know, they're PR people, they're press secretaries, they're media intercessors, they're intermediates (laughs) in the media. They'll spin it as though this is really what's best for you, but it's not. It's not what's best for you. It's legal plunder, like Bastiat said. It's legal plunder. And when Joe Biden is trying to blame shift to the corporations, hey, you guys are price gouging, he's lying. He's just straight up lying or else he is a dementiatic and he really doesn't know what he's saying or else these people really just don't care whether what they're saying is true or not. Maybe it's an intentional lie and you know better, but you still think this is what's for the best and you don't trust us with the truth because then we would actually fight you about it. We would fight you about plundering us and pillaging us and oppressing us. It could be that, or it could be, you really don't know what the hell you're talking about. And it doesn't matter because the people who keep you empowered don't know what you're talking about either. And isn't that great? Isn't that great? Ignorance is bliss, except it's not when the consequences hit. All of this brings us, however, to the article, the main event, the big show, Carl Truman's January 2024, First Things entry, The Desecration of Man. Yes, this is from the future. We love us. Some Carl Truman here also, by the way, and we love First Things magazine. Thank you to J.P. Chavez for sharing this one with me this week. Carl Truman writes, This year marks the 80th anniversary of the lectures that became C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, speaking to an audience at the height of the Second World War. Lewis identified the central problem of the modern age. The world was losing its sense of what it meant to be human. As man's technological achievements were once again being used to destroy human life on an industrial scale, Lewis pointed to the dehumanization that was occurring all around. And as the war continued, the final solution at the atomic bomb served to reinforce his claims. Yet modern warfare was not the only problem. As Lewis argued, The intellectual and cultural currents of modernity were also culpable. The war was as much a symptom of the problem as a cause. Modernity was abolishing man. It represented nothing less than a crisis of anthropology. Sociologists have proposed a number of concepts that characterize the modern age. These provide a useful backdrop to Lewis's observations. Perhaps the most influential is the Weberian thesis of disenchantment. Whereas once the local god or saint kept the water supply fresh and sweet, now the local water purification plant does the same. Village life has been replaced by the anonymity of the city. People have come to be valued not for themselves, but for their earning potential or their consumption. And disenchantment has worked its way into every corner of life. Whereas once love was a serendipitous force that culminated in a lifelong bond between two people, now we swipe left or right on our apps for the next hookup. These changes bring with them a sense of loss. Modernity has shunted religion and the supernatural to the margins at the cost of stripping the world of its mystery. The sea of faith recedes, Matthew Arnold wrote in a great poem, and we hear only its, quote, melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, end quote. The problem is not merely that the world has become prosaic. It is also that man has lost his sense of his own significance. The more we understand and control nature, the more we realize our own contingency and smallness amid the vastness of an impersonal universe. The unique intellectual brilliance of our species has, ironically, deprived us of any sense that we have special significance. As Pascal observed, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens those who reflect upon it. This is the ethos that haunts the work of many modern and postmodern writers. Kafka. Beckett, Sartre, Pinter. With no God-given human nature and no God-ordained human end, the question, what is man, is easily answered. He is nothing much. His nature, too, is disenchanted. A second facet of modernity, identified by Sigmund Bauman, is its liquidity. We live in a world that is in constant flux. This observation is not original to Bauman. Both Marx and Nietzsche voiced it in the 19th century. The Communist Manifesto famously declared that the bourgeois era required a constant revolutionizing of production and of markets, and thus of all social relations. Constant disturbance was a hallmark of modernity, as Marx put it, quote, all that is solid melts into air, end quote. Likewise, Nietzsche's madman, reflecting on the death of God, described the earth as unhitched from the sun, turning all old uncertainties into chaos. Both men spoke truth. The modern West is indeed in state of endless flux and offers us no place to stand, no firm grasp of who we are. More recently, the flux has been intensified by what Hartmut Rosa calls social acceleration. If Marx was correct that industrial production was a source of constant change in society, it was so in large part because it depended on technology that was itself constantly changing. We too live in an era of constant technological change, but it no longer affects merely industrial production. Technology shapes how we live in every area, from education to romance. Our lives are technologically shaped in public and in private, and the technology changes so fast that we are unable to assimilate one development before another overtakes it. The result is a dizzy feeling that our ability to control even our personal world is constantly slipping further away. In such a context, the questions of who we are and what we are meant for become impossible to answer. Indeed, to borrow from Yeats' The Second Coming, things seem constantly falling apart, and that includes the consensus on who or what man is and what he is for. The abolition of man, as Lewis describes it, takes place against the backdrop of two aspects of modernity its disenchantment and its accelerating liquidity yet I want to suggest that we need to add a third category, that of desecration. Man is made in God's image. That means that the abolition of man is a theological act with theological consequences. Neither disenchantment nor liquidity by itself adequately expresses this aspect of the problem. Desecration, a theological concept, does so. We can see this more clearly when we reflect on the limitations of disenchantment and liquidity as explanatory schemes. The first is that these concepts speak only to a loss of that which once was. Disenchantment, of course, points to the loss of enchantment. Whereas once the supernatural pervaded the natural, and the transcendent set the terms for the imminent, now only the natural and the imminent remain. Likewise with liquidity. We no longer have, in Marx's phrase, fixed, frozen relations. All true, but as will be seen, there is more to our modern condition than these losses. Okay, and we'll just pause right there. That is the first section, an extended section. We're reading quite a lot of Carl Truman's thoughts here. and There's much more to go. But here he's saying it's not just liquidity, and it's not just disenchantment it's not just in other words that there's so much change these are fluid constantly evolving circumstances and conditions on the one hand and it's not just disenchantment like whereas before there was a sense of mystery and a sense of awe we were inspired by what we didn't understand and now we think we have the answer to everything we think it's all science we think it's all what man does either right or wrong We can explain everything. We've got an answer for everything, or the experts do anyway. And we're not so enchanted with the experts, but what do you do? It's not just those things. It's also this third component, the desecration of man, which is to say that man is not regarded as having been created in God's image. And therefore, whether we're talking about the very mighty and wealthy and powerful and expert, or we're talking about the common man who will own nothing and be happy who is expected to smile and be content as he eats the bugs using public transportation and reducing his carbon footprint, man has been put at the very, very bottom of the created order. Instead of being God's crowning achievement, being God's glory and a reflector of God's glory in creation, man is held in contempt by modernity. Because God is held in contempt by modernity. This is really powerful stuff. This is really, really important for us to appreciate. We may be so many fish in water who don't know that we're wet when it comes to the desecration of man. It takes us by surprise and we may mock it. We may scoff at it. We may be cynically numb to it if we encounter the alternative. We say it's the exception rather than the rule. If someone shows honor and love and grace truly, not in mercenary fashion, not virtue signaling, not just complaining about the lack thereof, but if we actually see someone showing love and affection and honor to someone we regard as beneath our contempt, beneath society's contempt, it takes us by surprise. Why? Because man is not regarded as worthy of any special honor. If you're wretched, you're not getting any honor, there's no glory. If you're very accomplished, there's no honor and there's no glory. Because everybody is oppressor or oppressed, which is to say, you don't honor the oppressed, you pity the oppressed. And you don't honor the oppressor, no, no, you have to fight against the oppressor. And so everybody loses. When there's no third category for man, wherein he does well, he does what is good and is rewarded for it, and he enjoys the fruits of his labor's He enjoys the wife of his youth all of the days of his vain, meaningless existence like Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes. There's no third category for the man who's upright in his dealings, honest in his speech, who acts with integrity. There's no third category for the man who prospers because he does what is right and he does what is wise and he reflects the glory of God. Continuing on with Carl Truman, he writes in the next section, The second problem is that disenchantment and liquidity connote a lack of human agency. See also freedom. See also man's will. Liberty, in a word. Both are the result of impersonal social processes. Industrialization, bureaucratization, technologization, globalization. Connected to these processes is the reification, in common language, of the phenomena To which they refer, industry, bureaucracy, technology, the global economy, each takes on a life of its own in our imaginations. And we humans feature within these processes as interchangeable objects, not as active subjects or persons. Yet the processes themselves are the result of human activity. If we have become cogs in the machine, it is because we built the machine or someone, I would say. Sorry. Sorry, Carl Truman. Someone built the machine an important distinction. And here's where you can call me a conspiracy theorist. And I'll say, yes, but people do conspire. And so it has always been, and it will be. But back to German. <laughs> Further, we must not ignore the agency of the cultural elites. Thank you. The legal, educational, technological, artistic, managerial, and political classes. In the past, such elites saw themselves as tasked with continuity with the transmission of values from generation to generation and the careful cultivation of the institutions and social practices that were necessary for this task. Today, the dominant impulse of our elites is toward disruption, destruction, and discontinuity. The abolition of man is a conscious project of our culture's officer class, not merely the outcome of impersonal social and technological forces. Disenchantment and liquidity cannot simply do justice to this project. And there we go. Okay, so I guess Carl Truman and I both are conspiracy theorists. But then it's not conspiracy per se when they do it out in the open. And these are just the consequences of their ideas, ideas that they got from others and they have faithfully accepted the baton that was passed to them. And it's been a very rewarding thing. The ones who get the reward are the ones who will be most dutiful in maintaining the machine, after all, because the machine is credited with this material prosperity, this power, this connectedness, all of the impersonal benefits which are accrued. Disproportionately, those are ascribed to the people who are pushing this idea of modernity, which brings with it disenchantment and liquidity and, yes, the desecration of man. The third problem... Truman says, is that neither disenchantment nor liquidity takes account of the theological significance of the transformations that modernity has wrought upon the understanding of what it means to be human. One need not be a Christian or even a theist to grasp that these transformations have theological significance. Both Marx and Nietzsche connect their understandings of the modern world to desecration. In the same passage that pronounces that all that is solid melts into air, the Communist Manifesto declares that all that is holy is profaned. And Nietzsche's madman makes very clear that God has not simply ceased to exist in the moral imagination, but is dead. More than that, we have killed him. This slaying of God is surely the ultimate act of active desecration. Both Nietzsche and Marx view this desecration as good. For Marx, religion is an opiate that prevents the proletariat from feeling the full pain caused by capitalism, Criticism of religion is therefore central to the revolutionary project. Desecration is a precondition for the coming of the communist um, utopia, which is no place, by the way. For Nietzsche, the death of God, though placing a terrifying responsibility on the shoulders of human beings, is a necessary precondition for man's self-transcendence. The only question is whether we are up to the task. Are you a Superman or are you a regular, boring, traditional man? It is true that in modernity, desecration is not always the result of intentional agency, mechanized warfare, intensified modern problems surrounding theodicy, and inflicted serious damage on traditional religion. Wilfred Owen's great poem, Anthem for Doomed Youth, transposes the language of Christian liturgy to the slaughter of the Great War's trenches. The faith is desecrated, but not by the actions of any particular individual, rather by the chaos of a war supercharged by the power of industry the fruit of a coincidental confluence of numerous aspects of modernity. Desecration, however, is more often an intentional act. I noted earlier the impulse of modern elites toward disruption and discontinuity. Nowhere is this more obvious than in their preoccupation with desecration. From Algernon Charles Swinburne to Francis Bacon and beyond, the conscious profaning of the holy has been a constant theme. Take, for example, the opening lines of James Joyce's Ulysses, Stately plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned In Troibo ad Altare Dei. So begins the greatest masterpiece of modernism, with the first line of the Mass intoned by a man about to shave, with his genitals flapping in the breeze for all to see. Though Joyce's conscious intention is presumably not to abolish man by instantiating Homeric epic in the everyday life of modern Dublin, he ennobles man no less than he ironizes him. Ulysses opens with a moment of desecration that has implications for anthropology. To mock religion is, in effect, to mock the understanding of God and humanity that religion represents. Much could be said about the anti-religious tendency of much of high modernism. What is important to note, however, is that intentional desecration has migrated to the popular culture of our own time. As the sophisticated Joyce in the 1920s marked the Latin Mass, so the talented Billy Joel reminded us in the 1970s that Catholic girls wait far too long to lose their virginity, and now the buffoonish little Nas X performs songs as blasphemous as they are banal. Desecration is today mainstream, the preoccupation of even the lowest forms of cultural pond life. Now, let's pause briefly and let's reflect on this section. That's the end of section two from Carl Truman's piece here. In short, we see desecration as the third leg of this stool, as Karl Truman is explaining. Marx and Nietzsche both understood this. Not enough attention is given to it, perhaps because this is. What is felt most inappropriate to take seriously the act of desecration would be to say that it was not so good to desecrate. If you joke about it, if you laugh about it, if you don't even pay it any attention, you're participating in the desecration. But if you say, hey, this is a serious problem, like Carl Truman is highlighting, this is a thing and it's a problem and it's bad and it's been very damaging to us. It's dehumanized us. It's allowed us to be dehumanized in one another's eyes and in the eyes of the managerial class in these various spheres as they say, oh, well, it's just the process, right? It's not personal. It's just business. Or, well, that is what it is, right? Elections have consequences. Or it could have been so much worse if we hadn't done this thing. Could it have? Would it have been? Are you sure? Sure about that? You're not listening anymore, are you? It makes it too easy to say whatever collateral damage is just the cost of progress. The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. And when we can make these into statistics instead of tragedies, if we can say the desecration piece is no big deal, that's just the cost of doing business, it's not personal, it's just business. One, those of us who have lost our agency maybe don't feel it so poignantly. We don't want to feel the tragic nature. We don't want to feel that loss. We want to numb that pain, even if it means denying reality, escaping reality into ever more clever fantasies, constructed worlds, utopias, because they're really no place. They're nowhere. And oh, by the way, if you end up in nowhere, isn't that also the abolition of man? Where do you live? Nowhere. Well, that seems as though it's annihilation. It's not just the abolition of man, it's the annihilation of man. To say that the ideal is for everybody to go to utopia, that sounds like hell. In fact, it is hell because you're not here right now and you're not investing yourself in your own affairs. You're not aspiring to live a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, just as you were shown, so you can walk uprightly, have a good reputation with outsiders, and be dependent on no one. No, no, no. You are leaned on, you are pressured to take part in the desecration actively and passively, the desecration of man, you are either going to join in on as a test of your loyalty, as a test of your commitment, as a test of having a good sense of humor, right? Oh, this guy, he doesn't have a good sense of humor. Why doesn't he find this funny that we're destroying this person or these people? We're tearing them down. Why doesn't he find it funny that we're mocking what is good and true and beautiful? Maybe we should destroy him too. And so it goes. In the next section, Carl Truman writes, though further evidence that desecration has gone mainstream may be sought in many areas, I will focus on sex and death. Both have traditionally been matters of deep religious significance. Sex is the mysterious origin of life, death the mysterious end of life. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that a large part of the laws of the Pentateuch is preoccupied with the implications of sex and death for ritual purity. The law specifies in detail how one who is unclean because of sex or sex-related phenomena or through contact with a dead body may return to the community by means of sacrifices and washings. Islam, too, sees sex and death as raising matters of ritual purity. Christianity sees the Pentateuch as transformed through Christ, but the Pentateuch still provides the context for New Testament drama. In Mark 5, Jesus exercises the demoniac who lives in the cemetery, heals the woman with the flow of blood and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. In each case, the miracle is one of cleanness, overcoming uncleanness, connected to sex or death. And Christianity sees the marriage union as an analogy of the union between Christ and the Church, an analogy reflected in Paul's teaching on sexual ethics and in the Catholic Church's sacramental view of marriage. It is unsurprising then that Western societies continued for the longest time to surround sex and death with public sacred rituals, a marriage service, was the prerequisite for licit, not illicit, but licit sexual experience. And oh, by the way, licit being the opposite of illicit just means it's lawful. It's not unlawful, it's lawful, it's legal, it's permitted. And oh, by the way, we passed over it in the moment, but reification earlier, that is when you think of or treat something abstract as a physical thing. I should have mentioned it while we were there, but you're welcome better late than never. Here we see, back to Carl Truman, what this means is that modern shifts in attitudes to sex and death are not trivial. There are many important issues in society. Rates of income tax, speed limits on highways, the legal age for the purchase of alcohol, and so forth. But none are essential to the essence of a culture as attitudes to sex and death. One need not be religious to see this one must only acknowledge that sex and death have traditionally been matters of sacred concern in order to see loss of that status as significant. Sex and death are inextricably connected to the body. The one involves two bodies creating another, the other the cessation of bodily life. Indeed, sex and death were sacred because the body itself was sacred, bounded by the mysteries of birth and death. We might put this another way. Those made in God's image were made so as bodies. The image did not inhabit the body as an astronaut inhabits a spacesuit. The body was the person. Adam affirms this when he sees Eve and declares, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the New Testament teaching on bodily resurrection confirms that a person is not a spooky immaterial entity, but a unity of body and soul. The tendency of modern culture is to deny such significance to the body, embodiment is no longer enough for personhood, a point made by philosophers such as Peter Singer and Derek Parfit. But this argument is not the preserve of university seminars. It is part of the shared moral imagination of our age. We intuitively prioritize feelings and deny authority to the body and to the relationships embodiment involves. We think of ourselves as primarily psychological beings, a notion reinforced by the frictionless, disembodied interactions of our online world. The desecration of man thus manifests itself most pungently today as a battle against the authority of the body, specifically its sexual nature and its mortality. Pornography is one obvious example. What does pornography do? It takes the mysterious creative sexual act and depersonalizes it by making it a commodity for third-party consumption. The sexual act's meaning is found not in the interactions of the actors, but in the pleasure those interactions give to the consumer. Pornography turns the human subject into an object the embodied human person into a piece of meat, and the increasingly violent nature of pornography today reinforces this process. Pornography is thus dehumanizing, or to put it another way, it is a desecration of man. Of course, pornography's basic logic is arguably that of the sexual revolution pushed to its end, whereas sex historically was sacred because connected to the mystery of life, its contemporary significance is as recreation and self-fulfillment, whereas sex Once pressed the individual toward treating the other person as a subject to whom he had normally to be committed, now it tilts us toward seeing other people as objects to be used primarily for personal satisfaction. The sexual revolution involves a desecration of man. The transgender moment in which we now live is another example. The detachment of the person from the body reaches its apex in the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. This statement is plausible only in a world where psychological feelings have been essentialized and granted an authority denied to the body. Of course, there is a paradox here. If the body is irrelevant, why must it be re-engineered at extraordinary cost to conform to an inner sense of gender identity? The body is relevant only in an instrumental way. It is not the real me, but a means by which I give the real me outward expression. Now, We can and should be very careful in our pastoral approaches to this issue precisely because the person making such a claim is just that, a person, but to concede the validity of the claim is a denial of true personhood because it is a denial of the significance of the body to personhood. It is a desecration of man. And that is the end of that section. Really good stuff. Really good. Carl Truman, thank you very much. And I don't want to interrupt Because maybe he gets here in due time, but I think this is related to this debate about Christian nationalism, so-called. Is it okay for Christians to inhabit a body and to take seriously the fact that they inhabit a physical body? Is that at odds with our spiritual nature and what God has called us to in Christ Jesus? This, in turn, actually is just a new spin on a very old theological problem of Gnosticism which is to say that God cannot become the incarnate Christ. Either this is not really a human Jesus, not really human, just an astral projection of God. He just looked like a man. That's what some heresies proposed, some variation on that. And other heresies proposed that actually this was not God. Jesus was a man, not fully God, because. We can't suppose that Jesus was fully God and fully man. All of the oldest heresies rejected either Christ's full divinity or his full humanity. The new heresies desecrate Jesus, desecrate God in our conception by saying neither God nor Jesus have any relation to our physical world today. What we do, how we live, how we relate to one another on a Personal level, on an intimate level, say, for instance, in marriage, whether to get married at all, whether to get married to somebody of the opposite gender and be committed for life. Yeah, totally irrelevant. Your Christian faith, totally irrelevant. Even many professing Christians saying that's none of our business. But isn't that just an extension of the classic heresies regarding God's relationship to the physical world? and our physical bodies, isn't that just some variation on the rejection of what the Bible teaches about the incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus? If Christians are not comfortable with a biblical doctrine of man that flows from correct, sound Christology, they will also not be comfortable with the idea that God made us physical beings, as well as spiritual, to inhabit a physical place, which also has a spiritual significance, that our country has a spiritual quality to it, as well as a physical quality, and that we participate fully in that will be very uncomfortable to Christians who are also, whether they'll admit it or not, whatever they put down on paper as far as a doctrinal statement, because they're supposed to, that's what their purpose and belonging is contingent on, is the doctrinal statement being affirmed and attested to, whether they really truly believe it or not, if they're not comfortable with sound biblical teaching regarding man's spiritual and physical nature, as it relates to Christ's spiritual and physical nature, they will also, of course, not be comfortable with man participating fully, both physically and spiritually, in the life of his nation or their nation, as both a physical reality and a spiritual reality participating fully in world affairs. The utopianism really is a rejection of all of that, preferring some pseudo-spiritual heaven on earth, which will be brought about by abolishing morality and religion and even gender as a distinction that's meaningful. Abolishing the categories of true and false, good and evil. That is, yes, liquidity. Yes, also it is disenchantment. In fact, it has to be systematically. You have to bake it into the processes that the processes will disenchant. Why? Because we need the disenchanted people to let go, to release their grip on these distinctions between good and evil, true and false, preferring Christianity and its claims about God and man and the created order. We have to get people to let go of those things if we're going to get utopia. And so the processes have to strip the enchantment because the enchantment is part of what holds you to Christian faith. But then also, at the same time, liquidity is a part of the process because while we are deconstructing all of these things, which supposedly are standing between us and utopia, everything is up for grabs. Everything needs to be broken down. You can't stop so long as there are parts and components that still carry some enchantment, that still are integrated. And who then becomes the enemy of this new regime? Those who are reintegrating, reconstructing. Those who build, those who re-enchant become Subjects of ridicule because you're going the wrong way, according to the progressives, according to the moderns, according to those who are trying so damned hard to abolish man, to annihilate man. The transgender movement is then not a bug, but a feature of the push to disenchant and to make liquid everything else. It becomes a loyalty test, and it has been used for exactly that purpose, to drive out of the public square, to drive from positions of authority and credibility and wealth and property and community. Anybody who's not reading from the new prayer book, this is the equivalent of the Acts of Conformity in merry old England. This is the new prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer. This is the new liturgy. You will read from this. Otherwise, you will be defrocked. You will lose your professorship. You will actually even be driven out of town, and you'll have to live so many miles from the nearest village or city. And we'll mock you from over here, but you get no talk back. And all this being done online, in a lot of people's minds, somehow either inoculates it, and it's not that big of a deal, it's just online, or it spiritualizes it because they say, well, this is the truest expression of the will of the people. The Vox Populi, again, as Carl Truman said much earlier, in this piece, at first things, it's the managerial class in these various spheres, which insists on the new orthodoxy, which is making this either actually, or at least in our perception, the will of the people. And they have so many tools at their disposal to engineer choice, to make it seem as though this is inevitable, but this is not a new thing. There is no new thing under the sun. It's not a new thing. It's the same thing that was tried, for instance, as I'm saying, in England. And who were the nonconformists? They were the ministers and the lay people who said, absolutely not. We're not going to read from this new Book of Common Prayer. In many cases, early on, when the Acts of Conformity were passed in the first place, there weren't enough copies of the new Book of Common Prayer to go around, even if you wanted one. And so it was a variation also on something much more contemporary, You have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. We won't know whether the Book of Common Prayer is good or not until after you've committed to only reading from it because we're claiming absolute, total authority over your whole person. And we look with contempt on your private judgments, your private conscience, even if there's a whole lot of you, especially if there's a whole lot of you who agree. If it's not just your private conscience and you're a nonconformist, you could be hauled before a magistrate. You could be stripped of lands, titles, property, wealth. If you still won't bend the knee, you could be thrown in prison and even executed. Why? Because at a certain point, if we can't completely isolate you and it starts to pick up some momentum that other people are joining with you in being non-conformists, now, because of what has been pushed into the middle of the table in the way of CHIP's like this was a poker hand, at a certain point, by the nature of the arguments that have been put forward for why you must comply, you must conform. If a significant opposition to conformity is able to coalesce and take shape, it becomes a threat to the state. It becomes a threat to all order politically, economically, and religiously in this realm. And that is what Carl Truman is getting out here as well. That's why it's so important to desecrate. You have to use death works like Piss Christ, a crucifix submerged upside down in a vat of urine. You have to use death works to destroy the moral authority, the intellectual authority, the political authority, the social authority of anybody who might potentially cross-examine this new paradigm. Oh, yes, the math scores are much worse than they were before the pandemic, before the lockdowns, more to the point. But they were bad all over the world. Yeah. And who helped to make sure that this spread all over the world, this kind of a response to your lab grown mutated coronavirus? The same people who hoisted this on us in America. That's kind of what it is with globalism. Your globalized economy. Your preference for global citizenship and the pursuit of utopia and world peace on these terms, if you've been very successful, you have to admit you have the capacity to make this a global prescription, a global treatment for COVID, that everybody just stays home, stops working, stops going to school, stops going to church, definitely stop doing that. And isn't that curious? Why? Why stop going to church? Because you guys get together at church and you might find that it's not just you who's double-checking the math and feeling very uncomfortable with the basis of these judgments. Don't go to church because you might cling all the harder to, all the more fiercely to your Christianity. And that would move in the wrong direction. And then other people might be drawn to your church as well because... They're disenchanted with the disenchantment. They're disenchanted with the liquidity. They're disenchanted with the desecration of man. Back to Carl Truman. He writes, this allows us to see the paradox of the current problems within the broader LGBTQ and feminist movements regarding trans rights. Traditional lesbian, gay, and bisexual thinking assumes the importance of the embodied sex binary in that an attraction to one's own sex presupposes the stability of that sex as a category. Hence the growing opposition of some lesbians and gay men to transgenderism. But there is a problem here. These groups also, in practice, paradoxically deny the significance of the embodied sex binary, the idea that males and females exist in intrinsic sexual complementarity and that the one is made for the other. This denial effectively downgrades the importance of embodiment for personhood, for if properly ordered, sexual union involves the giving of oneself to another, then the sexual constitution of the body is a central part of both persons. But if the sexed nature of the body is irrelevant to the most intimate of human personal interactions, then who am I is detached from my body in a most fundamental way. I become something that inhabits my body and uses it as an instrument, not something that I am. In sum, one cannot desecrate the body and retain a stable notion of personhood any more than Nietzsche thinks one can kill God and keep the earth hitched to the sun. If sex is no longer sacred, then practices relating to death have followed a similar path. Once it was a sacred mystery, now we mobilize social and technological forces to deny it. Violence and death, once too sacred to be depicted on stage in Greek tragedy, have become the trivial or pornographic fare of movies and video games. The Roman Colosseum made death a matter of entertainment. Today, movies and video games bring pornographic violence into the living rooms, indeed, the palms of everyone with a television, a game console, or a smartphone. Real death is a purely medical affair with the dying placed in hospitals and hospices. The battle against the body is significant here, too. For what is the final authority that the body possesses? Not to dictate our sex as male or female, but to dictate that we are mortal. In light of this, Euthanasia looks like one last, and arguably futile, attempt to seize control of who we are. The attempt to domesticate mortality continues after death. Churches are no longer typically built with graveyards, with the result that worship is today not experienced in the vicinity of dead loved ones. Funerals are becoming celebrations of life. Every year, cremations rise in popularity in America, There may well be practical reasons for this, cost, lack of space, but it still serves to incinerate any lasting visible reminder from among the living of the dead as the dead. True, some have urns with the ashes of loved ones, but the jar on the mantle at home is different from, dare one say, less sacred than a burial ground next to a place of worship. It is hard to maintain quiet reverence when the television is blaring and the kettle is boiling. The same can be said of transhumanism of which transgenderism is a philosophical subset. The body in its mortality is the final barrier to self-creation. To identify as a man when you are a woman is to defy the body's authority. But you can persuade yourself with the aid of hormones, surgery, and the affirmation of the world around you. You can also defy the body's authority by identifying as immortal. But you will surely retain a suspicion that someday your body will assert its authority and contradict you. Hence, The transhumanist push to defeat human limitations, specifically that of the limited span of our mortal lives. This brings me to a further advantage of desecration as an explanatory scheme for much of modernity. It helps explain the intentionality and the exhilaration involved in the destruction of the old anthropology of human exceptionalism and limitation as grounded in the image of God. Desecration is an assertion of power, reinforcing the greatest myth our culture likes to believe that we are the godlike masters of this universe. Again, the ideas of disenchantment and liquidity cannot account for why, for example, some abortion activists regard abortion not as a necessary evil, but as something of which to be proud and to boast. Nor can they account for the male trans activist who recently bragged about wanting a uterus transplant just so that he could become pregnant and have an abortion. There is an intentional, ecstatic, irrational delight in the demolition of old moral norms, traditional categories, and bodily realities that goes beyond the impact of impersonal social phenomena. If we add desecration as a category, however, such things become more comprehensible. As both Augustine and Freud understood, transgression is pleasurable, and the greater the transgression, the greater the pleasure. Well, there can be no greater transgression than the act against the sacred. In killing God, we grant ourselves the privilege of becoming gods ourselves. There is surely no greater exhilaration than in being God. And there is no more dramatic way of being God than in waging a holy war against the God-given nature of embodied human personhood. Now, we'll just stop right there. We'll stop right there. There is more to this article. You'll have to read it for yourself. Read the entirety without my commentary, if that helps, because it's good. This is a good bit of writing and a good bit of thinking that we need to grapple with, but then that requires you being willing to wage war not on God, but on the supposed and false, more to the point, sacredness of modernity. We have far more reverence for modernity than we do for the Bible, even in many churches, even in many denominations, even in many Christian hearts. And this is why it goes without saying that, of course, we're going to conform to the pattern of this world so that we can, by all means, win some to Christ. Wait a second. No, no, no. That's not what Paul was saying. That's not what Paul was doing. He wasn't conforming to the pattern of this world. He was speaking the language of a person or a people who had an altar to an unknown God and then pointing that person to Yahweh, God, to the person of Jesus Christ, to the testimony that was true about God who became man in Jesus Christ. Paul never once denied the full humanity and divinity of Jesus simultaneously. As a matter of fact, throughout history, the heretics have consistently been those who downplay or else dissolve one or the other. And yet today, because of big tent, ecumenical, so-called American evangelicalism, The last thing you're supposed to do is offend somebody by pointing out that they may in fact actually be a heretic. Now, I grant there are some who are excessive and they think everybody's a heretic if there's even the smallest, tiny little difference. But this is a big difference. What Carl Truman is getting at here in the desecration of man at First Things Magazine for next month's issue, this is a big, big deal. To conform to what The modern world says about doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, is to make oneself an enemy of God. It is to be lawless. It is to be godless, except to become wise in your own eyes. And in that case, there's more hope for a fool than there is for us if we go down that path. There's an inherent unreasonableness, like Carl Truman is pointing out here, to saying on the one hand, Gender is not a thing, it's entirely arbitrary, it's a social construct, but then on the other hand, if gender is so arbitrary and your physical body doesn't have any bearing on your actual gender, then why is the young lady having her breasts removed? I thought you just said it doesn't bear any relation to gender and sex. If gender and sex are totally trivial and don't matter at all, why do you pride yourself on having relations with somebody of your own gender? because it's transgressive. That's the point. The point is that this is actually you declaring yourself an enemy of God and asserting dominance in your way of thinking, and you've been told that this is how you do it. You're asserting dominance over God. You'll claim you're trying to assert dominance over previous generations of hypocrites. Oh yeah, previous generations were claiming to Christian faith, and they were all fakes and phonies, and I'm not going to buy into any of that. Church is full of hypocrites, and so I don't need to be a Christian I'm going to go this other way. Well, wait a second. You're a hypocrite too then because you're implying that it was a bad thing to say you're one thing but actually be another thing. You're a hypocrite with regards to gender because on the one hand, you say gender is totally arbitrary and it's just however you feel on the inside, but then you're going and getting these expensive surgeries and taking these hormones and you're demanding, not asking, demanding that everybody around you, all of society, the whole world even, affirm you. Curious. I thought you said gender is a social construct. So, what you're really trying to do then is overhaul society to revolve around your feelings. But then, that is to say, you're trying to assert dominance over God's created order with God actually presiding over you and over society, both. It's no wonder that the Christians who are not quite sure they want to oppose that when it comes from the left, when it comes from the overtly godless, are also going to be extraordinarily uncomfortable when Christians who are more confident, more bold, more assertive, say, we're going to push back politically, we're going to campaign and lobby for the laws of our land to actually fulfill what Paul is talking about in Romans 13. Rewarding those who do what is good, punishing those who do what is evil. The government as a minister of God, like Paul says it is, instituted by God under God's authority, like Paul says that it is. We're going to operate under that assumption and that premise because we believe God's word is true. We believe this is good. The Christians who haven't, professing Christians anyways, the ones who say they're Christians, but at the same time, they're saying, well, let's go ahead and just affirm somebody's gender identity, whatever it is. Let's normalize and legalize the molestation of children or the abortion of children. That is to say, the murder of children. Let's normalize all of that if that's what the godless want. It would be unloving for me to push back on them. Actually, maybe what it is is your reasons for finding purpose and belonging in a church in the first place had more to do with that church being modern because you came into a space where the modern would be flattered and affirmed and not corrected, and not transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. You came into a space that calls itself a church, but really it's just a church of Satan. It's a synagogue of Satan. And you said, man, I feel so comfortable here. I'm a Christian. A real Christian would affirm this, 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 this. this. But actually, really, it's just you regarding as sacred the pattern of this world. Not as God says it should be, or as God explains it, or as God promises us he's going to reckon with it. No, no. You regard as sacred what the people who are very good at reading from the teleprompter tell you. You regard as sacred what the people who control whether you're going to get a raise next year or get a promotion the next time an opening opens up above you in the food chain, the chain of command, I mean, You, you regard as sacred their opinion of you. You regard as sacred what your neighbors and your friends and the parents of your kids' friends think of you. But in that case, maybe your God is not Yahweh, God. Maybe your God is your stomach. Maybe you are a lover of self instead of a lover of what is good and what is true, and what is beautiful. And all of this, too, is a desecration of man because it's fatuous, it's disingenuous to say, no, a real Christian would affirm these things, and support these things, and endorse these things. I'm a real Christian. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say these things are true that you're saying are true, that these things are good that you're saying are good. So now you're desecrating too. But if you're pushed back on by somebody who's also a professing Christian who says, it is written, it is written, it is written, very seldom will you get credit, or will that Christian get credit. The broader unbelieving world points to all of that. And they say, ah, see, they don't agree. They don't agree. And so therefore there must be no truth. We'll carry on. Yeah, yeah, you guys go over there, argue. We're never coming to church. And now the person who was in the right will be told they need to be the bigger man because we're damaging our testimony. We're not going to be able to do evangelism well. We're not going to have good fellowship with each other. See, you're sacrificing unity. And this is probably just your foolish pride. Never mind that pride here as a category of human vice and sinfulness is having a love for the truth inserted into it in a very convenient way for supporting the modern paradigm. Oh, what's that? What's that? Do you say? All claims to truth are just the will to power? Hmm. I don't think that was the Apostle Paul. That was actually Michel Foucault. Double-check your references. <laughs> Maybe read more scripture and Get less of your cues from movies and TV shows and the popular music and the public schools or the public officials who are catechizing you, and they have been your whole life. Maybe test what they say against scripture instead of the other way around, where they get to teach you what scripture means when they, quote, out of turn, not rightly handling the word of truth, scripture like Satan does to insist on an ungodly course of action, a wicked, debased, lawless prescription and even mandate. But all that said, again, thank you to Carl Truman for writing and publishing this piece at First Things. Thank you to First Things Magazine for publishing this piece. Thank you to JP Chavez for sending me this piece. Thank you to you all for listening. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening.